Welcome back to the Time for Heroes podcast. This week I'm speaking to Chris Helm. Chris Helm came to prominence as the lead singer of the Seahorses, who, if you're not aware, were John Squire's band after the Stone Roses split. We spoke about how Chris came to be in the band, what it was like playing with a British guitar legend, and what happened once the band split. And then, of course, we picked his heroes for his dinner party. I hope you all enjoy. I would say that the the sound quality isn't the best on this one, but bear with me. Right. So, thanks, man. Thank you very much, Chris, for coming on the show. No worries. Uh, If anybody doesn't know, this is Chris Helm. Uh, He used to be on the Seahorses. And uh, since then, you've been in a couple of bands, haven't you? The Yards. I was in the yards for about seven years. Yeah. Um, and I just done my own stuff, really. Um, yeah, we were, it was never really a couple of bands. It was sort of, I did the, the Rookery, which was with a band, which was kind of pretty much the yards, really, apart from um, a different drummer. Um, but yeah, there's been different amalgamations. I mean, since I split up from the CRCs, there's still a lot of people that I still play with, so I'm quite lucky in that respect, really. Um, yeah, I kind of, I'm not, <laughs> apparently someone told me that I don't play well with others, but um, uh, I, I, I haven't fallen out with anyone drastically. And if if there was good reason to fall out with someone, they'd forgive me. So they <laughs> I think I've got away with it. So, yeah. Uh, but, right. I've, um, yeah, I play with lots of different people. It's, um, it's been quite cool at the moment, the whole lockdown thing, really. You can call it cool. That's probably the worst word you choose. But it's um, meant that a lot of people who generally strictly play with other people have been kind of branching out playing with other people that they wouldn't usually play with. So it's, it's been nice. I've been getting to kind of jam with quite a few people online and stuff. Right. <laughs> Right, well, what I, what I usually do with the podcast is we go back to the start. So, uh, growing up, where did you grow up and how did that take you into music? Um, well, I grew up in a place called... This is good that I get a chance to do this, actually, because... If anyone needs to find anything out about anyone, the last place you should look is Wikipedia because it's bullshit. Yeah. Uh, everything's spelt wrong. Every other quotes <laughs> are wrong. Uh, and honestly, it's an absolute nightmare to get any of it changed. Um, so they reckon that I was born in Howden, which is bollocks. I was born in uh, in York uh, in 1971. And um, I lived in a little village called Oswaldwick which was just outside of York by about two miles. Not Oswald Kirk, as, uh, as Wikipedia reckons. Um, and um, I lived there until I was about 16. And then, uh, yeah, it was a funny little place, like you sort of suburban kind of, you know, sort of three-bedroom semi-detached houses with front and back gardens. But um, it, it was actually, compared to some places I've been, it's been quite quite posh really I suppose uh, but didn't feel it at the time it was um, running I don't think it was actually um, 
just seems to be kind of a place where sort of builders would buy the first houses and then rear these kids that were just out as fuck that just used to spend all their time chasing you around the village until you had the, the, the intelligence to get the fuck out of there and move somewhere else. Um, so it was, it was pretty uh, feral. Uh-huh. A lot of kind of field stuff after where the houses stopped. It was miles and miles of countryside. So uh, there was a lot of kind of just lacking around in fields and stuff, I remember. Right. Um, having cra- crab apple fights and stuff like that with little thorns put in them, <laughs> dipped in compacts. <laughs> yeah, we were little shits. But um, we, had a, we had a good time. I've got some good memories from there. But um, music was always something that you did at school, wasn't it? And then right. there's some, I remember my sister went to. Sunday school and I think they tried to get me to go my mum was pretty cool about that sort of stuff and she said well do you, what do you want to get for do you believe in God and I was like no she was going well what, what do you want to go to Sunday school for that and I was like well, that's a good point but my sister came back she was singing all these songs quite like the sound of them and I must have been I was dead young like about five or something and I started in primary school um, and the headmaster he sort of th- thought I had quite a good voice, weirdly. Obviously, my balls hadn't dropped or anything at that point in the <laughs> voice box. So, um, he used to remember he put me for the sort of supporting role in one of the plays, and I couldn't act to save my life. I can't even string a sentence together at the best of time, never mind, never mind remembering lines, you know. Yeah, you're supposed to learn. Um, and I remember just making myself really ill because I couldn't, I didn't want to do it. Mm-hmm. But he was like, Oh, you've got this this voice, so I want you to do it. I, I got mumped, worried that much about it, I think. So that was, I didn't do that one. And I think there's another one which I was ill for as well. But, uh, so I just never seemed to do it. But, um, I used to get really into music. He was mad and he'd put like a classical record on and I'd just been so obsessed with it. I don't know why, it's something just really hit the spot. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Uh, But I never thought I could do it. I know a lot of people, my mate used to play piano, but his dad worked on oil rigs, so he was kind of this lad. He was probably about nine years old at the time. He's getting these piano lessons. And he had a piano in his house. And I, play a little bit on it but not much uh, so he'd go for these lessons and he'd try and teach me um, what he'd learn but I just used to like the sound of it I mean I didn't know what I was doing mm-hmm. and I asked my mum and dad lessons but they couldn't afford it so I sort of didn't do that um, but um, got into things like rugby and boxing and stuff like that which are fucking <laughs> alpha things to be doing um, but I'm not that sort of guy, so that was a bit of a miserable experience uh, doing that instead of music. And then, right. so, my sister, when my sister went to secondary school, she sort of started to become quite cool, and she got like the jam. There was a bit of a mod revival towards the end of the seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, we were about about 1977, and I think they started to do this on mod revival in about '78. And then my sister was buying all their albums and then she got into the Kinks and she got into the Who and Small Faces. Uh, and other bands like Secret Affair and um, 
uh, Nine Below Zero, which were like the new mod bands at the time. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of like the team at the time in the late 70s. So that was the Bible. Um, so how, much, just tried... how much older was uh, your sister? Just two years. Right. Yeah. Just because and, um, my, my sister was kind of, my sister was 12 years older than me. I was born in 1980. So, but, but my sister kind of, she put me into style council and all that. That's, oh, all, yeah, yeah. that's all the stuff she listened to. And then kind of, I grew up with that. Yeah. So, I think well, I kinda, kind of, it was about the same time I got into, because I'd have been, in that in 79, I would have been eight years old. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I went to secondary school, there's a girl down the end of the street called Lindsay Pye, and her brother used to have this, um, this scooters, he used to do up Lambrettas and Vespers and stuff. And uh, he had a great collection of Elden Soul records, I remember. But everybody did at that time, so it was no big deal that people had these records. But I remember he had a mod parker, um, but he stuck a, he cut out a square from a T-shirt, which just had the style cancelled and put it on the back. And um, I think he went away for a bit, so I ended up asking if I could borrow this jacket. And I remember, I think he was about sort of like six foot. And I was, when I was about... 11 or 12, I think I must have been about maybe five foot one. So this, <laughs> this big mop pack, it was like the fish tails were dragging on the floor and you could just see my little bowling shoes popping out the back with the sizing on the back. Um, but everyone took the piss out of me because they were saying, oh, you're a plastic mod because you like the style, style council, you're not to the jam. And I'm like, well, what's the plastic mod? I didn't realise until then that it was such a kind of snobby little kind of cultural cul-de-sac which once you've been it's very difficult to kind of get out of it and that's what you actually want to be doing with your life so um yeah but yeah I looked alright, right Dick <laughs> <laughs> I think we all did that age didn't we were all looking for some sort of image to fit into yeah that's it you wanted to be part of something and you know I'd watched Quadrophenia about 10 billion times so Got completely the wrong end of the stick of it as a nine-year-old. I just thought Jimmy was was a hero. I thought it was amazing. And then you watch it when you're in the middle, you think, Jesus, what an idiot. Oh, it was um it was an important film, I think, that film for me when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. uh, you know. It's just my sister has a lot to answer for actually. Um, which is maybe why I forgot her birthday yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> Fifty-two days. Right. Yeah, I've, I've, I've got grovelled. I've said no apologies, but um, yeah. yeah. She got me into, so she got, she, after she was a mod, she got into Prince. And I swore down, I was like, there's no way I'm going to get into Prince. I can't get into Prince. Only mob mates are going to rip the piss out of me if I get into Prince. And I'm not doing it. And she was also going, you want to like music that I like? And, uh, and I was desperate to fight it, but <laughs> I couldn't help it. I just got into Prince. I just really love Prince. Uh, and I think I got into Prince until I was probably about sort of 17 or 18, I think. Right. Um, and all that, that all came about, didn't it? Um, and then there's uh, there's just so many different styles of music that I go into, but I couldn't play anything at this point. People mm -hmm. who play guitar who were in bands, like the bands at school, they were like all into like, oh God, like Spandau Ballet or Level 42 or some horrible yeah. mutation. Is kind of 
vomit-inducing thinking about it, really. But um, I remember thinking, well, I don't want to be in a band because that's the last thing you want to be doing. It's just so cool. These guys need to get girlfriends or something because there's something wrong with them. Um, so there's bands like The Cure, which I thought were really cool, and all the sick farmers into the Smiths and stuff. And uh, I was just didn't even think about where these cool bats came from. I thought they were maybe grown in test tubes or something, you know, like the Beatles or Small Faces and stuff. But, uh, so they have the prospect of becoming a musician and actually, you know, doing yeah. it for a living, something that I'd never <laughs> ever thought about until until I probably joined the Seahorses, I think. I, was, uh, I just did it because it yeah. was better than working. You know. So, so when then Straight did you... When did you pick up a guitar? When did you realise then you could play? Did you teach yourself or did well, you do lessons? Or? I've said this, this story a million times, but it's true. There was a, a girl called Jeannie who I used to go out with. I went to college in Scarborough. I did graphic design in Scarborough um, just to get away from Osbaldwick and the feral nature of my friends who were all heading very quickly towards prison or death. Um, so I ended up going to Scarborough, got away from it all, um, because I wasn't running around with a pack of other feral idiots. Mm-hmm. You know, just get into trouble on your own. They look after yourself, and no one else is going to sort of help you out. So uh, it kind of taught me a very, few very quick lessons. And then after that, uh, met this girl called Jeannie after a couple of years, and she was into Pink Floyd and Bob Marley and all that kind of stoner music and I remember thinking she was really cool and um, she ended up bidding me to go out with a guy who played guitar uh, and I was absolutely gutted and um, I thought fuck it I'm going to learn how to play guitar so I picked up a guitar we made it's a guy called Paul Lampley who very kindly lent me his American Stratocaster he must have been mad and I went back to York with it and played it for a bit put it through my sister's stereo through the microphone input and all this black smoke fellow out the back of the amp. Um, that was the end of a record player. Uh, <laughs> I had no idea. I just thought, well, if it's got a plug in it and you can fit the lead in it, then it should work, right? Um, uh, I just kind of persevered. I didn't really know how to tune it. But by this point, I was 19, so I was about 19 years old when I started doing that. And then someone taught me how to tune the guitar properly and then I kind of picked up a few tricks for some really patient friends of mine. But I think the thing is, if you really want to do something, then you, you, you learn. It's not yeah. like we had YouTube like that. You couldn't look up anything. You know, you'd go to a music shop and it'd be like, you know, 20 quid for a, a card book and a, or a DVD if you, or a video actually back then. Um, and there seems to be so many rules with stuff about this is the correct way to play, you know, this sort of music. And like, but fuck off, that's not what it's all about. Um, so I kind of didn't really grasp it until I started playing with other people. And they realised I was a dreadful guitarist. So they, but they said I, I had probably the best band out of the lot, was best, the best voice out of the lot. And so I ended mm-hmm. up being the singer in the end. And, and um, yeah, that kind of fell into that, really. really? We met Andy Parrish in a bath once when I was at a shared house. And he'd been kicked out of a band. And he was trying to start up his own band ended up joining a band with him. Right. Uh, so and I was probably about 20. So it's quite about a year after I blew up my sister's um, amplifier. Mm-hmm. 
So what sort of music were you playing with this band? And what was the meaning? Well, the drummer was in Sir Mitch Mitchell from um, the Jimi Hendrix experience. Right. And the first guitarist, Nick Walk, well, naturally, no, there was a guy called Simon Tilly who was into all sorts, really, like Led Zeppelin and stuff. And, um, and he started writing songs as well, and Andy did as well. And, and I did, because I found it easier to actually write songs and remember them than it was to learn other people's songs. Mm-hmm. I think we did something like Sympathy for the Devil, and I just couldn't believe how many verses it was to remember, you know, and the gig was on like maybe two days' time, and I was there panicking about getting the words wrong. But the peers were so dreadful back then anyway, no one would have even noticed. <laughs> so it was uh, it was good fun, like. Um, I kind of just fell into it, and then I was working as a graphic designer at Prince's at the time, and I hated it. Um, and then I got into just started waiting on really because you could make more money doing tips, and then to subsidize that, I kind of started busking a bit as well. Mm-hmm. And um, before I knew it, I had like three, four part time jobs and was busking, and you know, right. uh, it was. I don't think I, I can't do it. Jesus, I can't do it now. I went busking not so long ago, actually. I went back out again about maybe two years ago. Um, and it was about minus one. And I went and sat by the minster just because I've not done it for ages. And I remember just thinking, this is, is really quiet. And uh, got myself a little spot. And I did about half an hour and got 65 quid. And I thought, that's not bad. Yeah. Doing all right here. And then... Uh, Went and moved around the corner to another place, and uh, I think I was there for three hours and made some like eight quid. Yeah, it's really it, just, it just depends, didn't it? The sport you're in, about, and um, so yeah, that was the last time I went out, but it was nice to do it again. I used to love busking. Yeah, um, my friend's got a sport, or my friend had a sport, and he's passed it down to another guy, and he's passed it down to another guy. It's went through. Uh, three or four people over the years and they've kind of... Oh, right, that'll be doing. Oh, yeah, it's right. the best spot. I think York's one to... where you have to move on after every two hours. It's a kind of unwritten rule, but it works. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of buskies in town at the moment and fair, a lot of them are amazing. They're really good, you know, they just uh, they have to work hard for the money, you know, and they, they definitely are unique, you know, whether it be like virtuosos on guitar or these guys playing these kind of tubes for drums things, you know, doing like techno music and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's not very diverse as it used to be. Yeah. So you would, am I right in thinking, did you go busking in France? Was this with yeah, the band? Yeah, right. yeah the band Chutzpah, I was in, or Chutzpah, however you want to pronounce it. And we, um, that was with Andy, the bass player, a guy called Jamie on guitar. Uh, Billy on drums, um, uh, Chris Johnson on keyboards. Oh, it's me. I'm missing someone. Oh, uh, me, Jamie. I can't miss anyone on these Zoom things, otherwise I'm going to be skinned alive. Me, Jamie, Andy, Billy. There's Becky's girlfriend came along as well. And little Chris, uh, yeah. And um, we ended up just travelling up and down France, really. Um, ended up on, in Aix-en-Provence for quite a long, long time. And 
haven't been back there since, but I'd love to go back. We sort of sleeping in by the churchyard um, for quite a long time as well. So right. every Sunday there used to be all these people dressed be able to dressed up in the Sunday best, you know, going to church. And we'd be camped up next to next to the, the stubble field next to the church in there, thinking they were gonna move us on, but they didn't. They were really cool. That was back in about five. And um how things have changed, you'd get arrested, wouldn't you now, for being some sort of I don't know, terrorist or something. Yeah. So what what was the idea behind this? Did you or just was it like a kind of gap year or you just kind of all decided to fuck off to France? Gap year. Gap year. Don't you dare. I've been got to uni, I didn't have a gap year. Um I finished at Scarborough Tech and then I went straight into work and I ended up um it was just something to do after Glastonbury really. Right. Um and then as things go, you know, we're all in a van for I don't know how long it was. I think in my mind it was about three months, but it might not have been that long. Uh and I ended up with the whole band just sort of disintegrating as it would do. It was proper load of the flagship by the end of it. And um you know, we were basically living hand to mouth and playing on, in the daytime and then and on a night time. Um, and then just going, buying food, drinking wine, and then doing that every day. Uh, but we never had any money. My mates, we even got back. Um, I mean, we had this Foxhole Fiat Ducato as well. That's kind of, we must have gone through about eight different sets of tyres. And um, it, it was great. It was a, I remember my... My experience to do, um, you know, travelling around with this bus, we were on, you know, in nice tour buses, um, posh hotels and stuff like that with the seahorses, and you just, they're all, it becomes a thing, but we're sleeping in, on beach, anything can happen, There's a lot of memories from that, but I'll say that from the, for the memoir, I have to get my story straight with the rest of them. Sure. How how long after he came back to France did the seahorses come along? Because you were kind of, that came through busking as well, didn't it? You were sported busking. Well, yeah, I, went, I mean, moved to Brighton for a bit. Oops. Um, and uh, I lived there for a few months, not long, about five months. So I came back from France, spent about a week in York and moved from um, York to Brighton just for a change of scenery. Um, and then we spent winter in Brighton, which is weird. I uh, mean, the girl I was seeing at the time. Um, but whilst I was there, I was—I uh, wrote quite a lot of songs actually, because obviously the whole French experience was there was quite a lot of stuff in me that I needed to sort out. And I wrote um, yeah. "Moving On" when I was there, and I wrote "Bye Bye the Sun" when I was there. Um, I wrote "Dreamer" when I was in Brighton. Yeah. And then um, I think after Christmas, I came back to York and then started busking again, had a few more jobs, worked in a second-hand clothes shop, you know, like a vintage place called Ragamuffin. Mm -hmm. And then weirdly, one week, um, I got offered, it was almost as like all my birthdays came at once. It was weird because John Martin was coming to York and he was playing a place called Fibbers, which is where I used to work before um, I went off to France. And... Uh, Tim, the the, uh, the owner of Fibbers, he said, look, you like, you like John Martin, why don't you come and support him? And I was like, oh, there's no way I'm not good enough, I can't do that, but my mate Dave can do it. 
So I remember, I remember giving that support slot away. Um, and in the end, Dave didn't support him anyway because John Martin was off his base and just wanted to play for three hours. So no one got to, got to support him anyway. Um, and then uh, this is another band called Swagger that had seen me busking. And they were from Durham. And uh, But I was by this point, I was about 25. Right. And they wanted me to sing this song called um, Teenage Hero. And and then one of the lyrics was, they say, I want to be a teenage hero. And I say, don't want to be a teenage hero. It was all quite basic. And I'm thinking, well, this is shit. And, and to be fair, I'm 25. I'm not a teenager. And I haven't been one for ages, so this isn't going to work. <laughs> and, um, and then weirdly, I met John's, John Squires walked past and asked me if, well, and I was busking another day and asked me if I'd uh, give him a tape to pass on to John's. But by this point, Stuart Fletcher had already been picked up by John anyway, so we knew that John was kind of around York and he, I knew that he was looking for a band, but um, Stuart had kind of said, why don't you put your name forward? But I just never got my shit together cooking up really, so he didn't go through Stuart, but um, this Dennis guy who walked past, suddenly uh, not with us anymore, Dennis. Yeah. Um, if you want for him, I wouldn't be sat here chatting to you about it all. Yeah. Uh, sorry, mate, to keep sending me messages. So, um, yeah, he, he said, can you give us a tape? And I was with the photo in it. And I remember thinking, I had to go to the train station to get like, one of his passport photos taken. Um, because I was working in this vintage clothes shop, I looked like someone from Starsky and Hutch, you know, I had this big fucking <laughs> <laughs> Big yaffers and fur collars on this uh, suede jacket I was wearing. Right. Um, I looked like a right dick. And, <laughs> you know, this is when kind of the ways sort of like come out with uh, roll with it and all that sort of stuff. So that look had been a few years. Yeah. So, you know, the whole kind of Brit pop sort of Ben Sherman's and, you know, all that malarkey was, was in. Uh-huh. So I was wearing those. I was being really picky. He did like the look of me. At one point, he said he thought my neck was too fat. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, he kind of—he was really hard to persuade. That some people were, were saying, "Look, you don't know what you're looking for." They've been, I think, they'd auditioned quite a lot of people, or seen a lot of photos, and listened to a lot of demo tapes by the time I came along. Right. Um, and I did a gig and. I was really drunk because I was nervous and I snapped about four of my guitar strings and went up to him afterwards and just murdered the shit out of him. I was like, what did you think? What did you think there? And he was like, and then I'd go over two minutes later and go, no, but what did you really think? You must have been thinking, I want you to fuck off, you're going to Um So I kind of forgot about it, didn't hear anything back. I remember going about two weeks later, I went away to Sleaford. Uh, my mate was living there and he was having a house. He was, flat, he was moving out of a flat, that's right. He was having a party. And uh, we stayed up all night. And then I forgot that I had a gig in York. So my mate drove back really quick. My mate Pete. And we got back to York. I'd already missed my support slot, but the other band had had to go on first. And then I went on second. But I got through the door. It was only me playing, so it wasn't like I had a band or anything to worry about. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, Martin is guitar tech. Um, um, 
Simon Moran from SJM and Steve Atherton, who was the tour manager for the Stone Roses. They were all amphibious waiting for me to turn up. And I thought, what the fuck are they doing? Wanting to see me, I was bright shit at the last time I saw them. And then they were like, I played and I didn't have any sleep. I wasn't bothered. I thought they weren't there to see me. Um, so I think because of that, you know, John just was like, came over and he was like, oh, it was really good, a lot better than last time I saw you. And I'm like, oh, thanks. And then he was like, come and play Manchester um, at a place called the Roadhouse. And I remember uh, supporting a band called Cheney, I think they were called, and they were really good. Um, and uh, I think Steve Atherton was managing them. Um, but he won. They were quite sort of heavy electric guitars, and my mum there was acoustic guitar just singing this stuff. Um, and um, yeah, they seemed to like it. I remember Sean Ryder's dad was doing the sound that night. Right. First sort of person really that I'd met after John. So it's <laughs> Sean Ryder's dad. Uh, sure. Yeah. It was weird, and John came and took me into his car afterwards, and he had this big Land Rover that was probably worth more than my first house, and he put this um, tape on about his songs that were kind of like um, a bit like a jigsawy sort of crazy pagan ideas that were sort of kind of together, uh-huh. more together than than he probably give himself credit for, and. and um, yeah, I was just kind of like, there's a good gift. You could hear the stuff you could work with there. And and, it, and so after that, I went to Lancaster and spent about a week around at his house going through the song. And all the time, I think, how the fuck did I get here? Because it all happened really quick. Yeah, like a whirlwind. Yeah. And so, wet, like, see when he's kind of recruited you for the band and he's got. You've got Fletcher, haven't you, and the, the drummer as well. So Well, we didn't have a drummer for a long time. Right. Um, we, when me and John had kind of spent a week with me, I think he was really still unsure that I was the one. And then um, we all decided to go to the Lake District and, and so it was great, actually. We spent quite a long time there and it was like being a kid in the sweet shop really Simon Moran put some money up so we could buy ourselves the guitars that we always wanted and you know amplifiers and things and uh yeah. the air system that you got to hear yourself through and um and we're there in these lovely kind of big old country houses in the middle of the lake districts with no one around for miles um, just playing through these songs and, and we were very productive I remember not, nobody wanted to cock it up um, especially John John was very industrious I remember he kind of we used to go and play with him for a bit then he'd slop off and, you know he's pretty hard I'd say probably about 12 hours a day he'd be there kind of working yeah. stuff out and it must have been a, kind of a weight on his shoulders or knowing that he was when well, he was coming back, there was going to be pressure on him to be be the Stone Roses guy that he was. You know what I mean? So yeah, I mean we would sort of we were naively we thought that it was, everybody would see it as a completely different thing from the Stone Roses because it was. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, people's imaginations sometimes press won't let people's imaginations stretch that far. 
And um, so he had a lot of a burden on his shoulders, really. And I think he tried to sort of like, he didn't call that kind of thing. He didn't want it to sound like the Stone Roses. He just wanted to, you know, he'd written some songs and he wanted to do what was right for those songs. Yeah. Um, and there was elements of, well, there's a lot of different influences. I think he's listened to a lot of the Beach Boys, I remember at the time, and a lot of Johnny Mitchell lately, and um, uh, and Spencer Davis Blues Explosion. Um, yeah, it was. I just remember just thinking, right? Well, he, he gave me a four track, like the most basic four track you can get machine to record on, so I can put all my idea my ideas down for my songs, but also work out harmonies and bits of guitar parts for his songs and mm-hmm. I wasn't very good on guitar like I said so I was like you know well I can sing those so I ended up singing these harmonies and he really likes a lot of them um, and that's why it took so long for us to get a drummer because he obviously thought that all drummers could sing right because Rennie could so everyone else should be able to sing and there's not many singing drummers around especially really good ones you know and I think at that point even then, he probably didn't even realise that Rennie's a one-off. You know, you just don't get any anyone who can sing and play as well as him. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, so that was torturous. I mean, so these poor drummers that would be coming and they were fucking amazing drummers. But, you know, some of them couldn't sing at all. Some of them had never sang but tried to, but then the drumming all turned to shit when they were trying to sing and play at the same time. And I remember trying to think, this is a nightmare. Uh, we got a guy called Mark McNeil who came to play, and he he was great actually. And we had a few uh, personal issues, bless him. So he, he um he didn't work out with Mark, uh, which is a shame because he was a brilliant drummer. Um, and then we uh, got Andy Watson because he was the only other singing drummer that we knew really. Mm-hmm. So he came to London. He'd been working as like a courier, I think, um, and a graphic designer, and he. Um, yeah, he came along and he was quite reticent to so join us, Andy, because it's very much his nature. He doesn't, doesn't like to be uh, told what to do. <laughs> so he, it was good fun, though, We because we all realised that we're thinking, well, this is all right, isn't it? You know, middle of the district, the fridge is full. We've got, like, bacon sandwiches in the morning if we want. Because um, I was just used to living on some mouth, really. And then all of a sudden I'm getting for me in too much dead pig and uh, John had to pull me up about once uh, or twice but um, yeah it was uh, it was cool um, and then we did some demos and then we ended up I think we might have done a secret gig before we went to America or it might have been after when we came back from recording I think it might have been before no no we did I think it was in Scotland it was a place called Recos in Green in Green Greenock. Right. And uh it was fucking packed. And I remember being terrified. There was so many people crammed into this place. Um it was definitely it was a secret gig, but I think whoever promoted it yeah told everybody that he knew that John was going to be there doing his new band. And that was the first test I got of what it was going to be like for the rest of it. It was just insane. Right. Um, but I also got a test of it. Well, this guy came up to the, the front of the stage and he uh, he looked like Ian Brown. 
I mean, just like him, and his hair was the same, his face was the same, and he's probably about the same height. And he came over and he goes, You'll never be here, bro. <laughs> 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 uh, but you're giving it a good go. Um, and it's just kind of like, oh, right, maybe that's what people think. Maybe that's what people expect is me to be a, another Ian Brown, which I definitely want. So, so um, at that point, did that kind of, how did you feel about that? Was that kind of like a wee alarm bell for you? Well, I kind of ignored it. And then because the press hadn't really seen us, I had anything to grab hold of. And, you know, comparisons people make, you know, no matter what I felt sorry for for John because it's like no matter what he would do, people you know, the, the Stone Roses was such a kind of um seminal band at the time, you know, and it's it's like you can't do anything other than that, unfortunately. It's like Mick Jagger going off to something. It's like no one give a fuck. Yeah, it's like all they know, want what? is a, a recreation of the band, didn't they? They just want Stone Roses Mark II. Yeah, which shows a huge lack of imagination. Um, I mean, if the Stone Roses had released about eight albums, then maybe people would have got enough of what they wanted from it. But I think the fact that, you know, the band, they'd only done two, and, you know, John had set up this new thing, people were still wanting more Stone Roses stuff, and they weren't getting it. Um, so I think that's kind of, kind of, I've never really thought of it like that, but that's probably one of the big reasons, really, as far as a public sort of taste and what you know public consumption kind of thing mm-hmm. they just wanted that but we we gave them something else and it's weird some people we definitely split the the the, the kind of stone roses fans down the middle whether you you know it's like it's almost like paul weller in the style council like we were talking about earlier it's a plastic mod moment isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well the hang has oddly Oddly enough, I probably got into Seahorses before the Stone Roses because I was 97 when the album came out. I had them in 17, so I was probably just slightly too young for the first Stone Roses to kind of get at. So Seahorses was a big deal to me because you were on all that. You came out and you you were like kind of the second wave of Britpop, weren't you? So, yeah, there was a second wave of it. I mean, yeah. we didn't even think we were Britpop. It was weird. I mean, someone went to the, we were in America quite quite a lot because the record company was there. And I remember doing a lot of press in America. And um, so they'd be like, so, you know, uh, being a Britpop band. And we were like, what are we? And we we're like, well, yeah, you're, you're, and John was like, so probably British and we're popular, but we're not Britpop. You know, we're not Elastica or Shed 7 or, you know, I remember when Britpop happened because Shed 7 was from York, so it's like, you know, mm-hmm. and um, Supergrass, that was, that was Britpop. Blur, you know, um, Oasis, Britpop. Seahorses uh, was, we weren't, uh, yeah. it didn't sound but, like Britpop. No, well, but I get you, but it was kind of, any any kind of British band that played guitars back then was kind of you know, everybody was lumped together, wouldn't they? 
So yeah, yeah, I think you were. I mean, it made it easier, and it's it's, it's good now. You used to get all those compilation CDs as well, like in the in the anthems, and you would you would always get a couple of seahorses yeah. songs on that. So uh, shine, yeah, all of them. But I, I do a lot of. It's good now because I play a lot of um, kind of these Brit pop extravaganza night things, which are quite good fun. It's basically an excuse for a massive piss up for a lot of people whose kids are now gone to uni or grown up or whatever, you know. They can actually have some freedom and go and listen to the bands that they used to listen to. Um, and uh, I've met some lovely people, people that actually were around about at the time, but for far too cool for Christmas to even talk to the likes of me. And I was too shy to go over and say anything. So that's been quite nice because everybody's gone sort of full circle around and everyone's grown up and all that bollocks isn't there anymore, you know, and it's quite nice just to chat to people. Really. So um, yeah. I'm doing some stuff with Mark Morris and Nigel actually from Dodgy and Mark from the Blue Tones. So mm-hmm. we're doing this three piece, the tree, um, which is great. Um, you know, Mark and Nigel, I mean, Blue Tones was, I saw them support Supergrass at the Duchess in Leeds um, when Supergrass did the first sort of tour and then saw Dodgy when they did the first album with Staying Out for the Summer on it. They were the first decent band. So, you know, they were, I always thought Dodgy and, and, and the Blue Tones were brilliant because I love the songs, just great songwriting. And I've yeah. been sat there just before lockdown in an Airbnb, middle of nowhere, um, uh, in Hereford, sitting writing songs with these two blokes who, you know, I was kind of a bit of a fanboy, if I'm honest, back so, then. So what's going on with that? Is that kind of, are you writing new songs then? Yeah, yeah, we're writing new stuff. Right. Um, it's strong stuff, actually. I think we've got about eight tunes at the moment, and then lockdown came again, so we, we had to stop. But we're going to be doing some some gigs coming up um, from, well, you never know. I mean, have a look on our gig pages. Hopefully, fingers crossed, it'll happen. Um, mm-hmm. uh, See, so see what the COVID situation is, um, but yeah, we do kind of our own stuff, and then we'll do stuff together, and we always end up doing like maybe a cover or something at the end or whatever. And um, right, it, it's all really good fun, you know. We pretty much figure out what we're doing on that night, but um, the new stuff's really lovely. It's it's quite hard to sort of put your finger on what what where it's come from, considering that we all have our sort of certain distinct writing styles, I think it's, uh, but the three-part harmonies work really, really well, so that's something right. that, um, that's, that's the, that's the kind of secret weapon, I think. Cool. What, what are you hoping for, is that, would you, would there be an album release or anything like that? We'll see. Um, I don't, I don't imagine know. there'd be, people would want it, people would be interested we, in that. We all want to do that. Um, this whole COVID thing's kind of knocked the shit out of it all a bit, really. Yeah. Uh, we had going, it was really cool, and then, you know, all, everything just came to a standstill, and it was basically people just playing on their own at home, doing like live streams and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it back up now. Uh, we, we stay in touch, you know, talk every week, so we're kind of getting on with um, sorting out what we need to do next, because you've got to plan so far ahead. And then expect it all to just be knocked down like some skittles, you know, because of, um, and it's, I think people are being really 
accommodating that, you know, people buying tickets for gigs, for instance, are used to having get the refunds and stuff. And um, but I think this time round, I, I don't know. I'm really hoping that ever, you know, I think because people have had the vaccinations and the government will be. There won't be putting any restrictions in, I don't think. I think we'll probably no. just go like, well, the COVID is sure. They're desperate to get the economy started as well, aren't they? So they'll... But we'll talk about... It's just it's a year now, isn't it? So it's kind of like, you know, I feel like I'm just in this weird dream world where, you know, it's actually kind of quite relaxing because you can just not commit to anything, really. You just go, yeah. it probably won't happen. But yeah. I do it's... hope it does... That's yeah, it kind of just takes, a, it's took a lot of the momentum out of things. That's kind of the downside of it, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm not, I know, like, I was talking to someone the other day about this, about, you know, when the pubs open and stuff, and people sort of, we used to say, oh, I can't wait to get back in the pub and have a pint. Now I'm kind of like thinking, God, oh, do you remember when we used to go into those buildings and spend like five times more than we usually would on a pint? Just to get drunk in front of people we didn't know, um, and it's like you know, I'm kind of not really buying that anymore. <laughs> I don't think I should do that. I'd rather stay in and finish an album off and drink adequately priced alcohol. Thank you very much. <laughs> Maybe yeah. that's a tight with me. I don't know. Right, going going back, I just want to touch on a. Uh, the Seahorses album because there's some brilliant songs on it and you wrote some you wrote a, a few good songs there. So like Blinded Me the Sun's a belter there song. So what was the kind of what was the songwriting process for that? Did you kind of come I remember with the idea and Yeah, I was, I was on my own. The the flat that I had in Brighton was um there was kind of a back bedroom and then there was this corridor where the toilet was and then there was this weird little, almost like a walk-in wardrobe type thing, which is supposed to be a bedroom, but it wasn't wide enough to get a bed in. So that's where I just sort of stuck myself. We didn't have any windows or anything like that, so it's odd that I called that, I wrote Blinded by the Sun in there, but at the front of the house, there was this big window which had a, it been painted open, not painted shut. So there's this gap in it. And um, I think we got fed up, the, we fed up of the curtains blowing. And we just took them down. And every morning you'd walk through and, and the sun would be coming through. They never clean the windows, so it's face the seafront. So it was a really mucky windows and the sun would be coming through and it was really glaring and you couldn't see what you were doing. I remember smashing my shins on the coffee table more often than I'd have wanted to. Um, and then we this. There was other stuff going on at the time. And uh, and I wrote, I wrote that, but I was listening to a lot of Verve at the time, and a right. lot of John Lennon from a Plastic Ono band sort of time. And I was listening to a lot of Oasis and Paul Weller, Pulp, uh, Tim Buckley, because my mate uh, Simon Berkovich, he used to work in a record shop, so he had all these amazing albums. Um, so he's got a lot to answer for as well. Um, but yeah, it was. I remember just thinking because I wasn't really very. I didn't think I was very good at writing songs. But then when I wrote that one, um, 
that's when I felt like I'd actually written something that was quite decent. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't embarrassed about it. I remember just asking people what I thought of it. Uh, like my mates, so when I finally moved back to York, I played it to my mates, and they were like, "Oh yeah, that's got something about it." That, um, but originally it was a bit of a stomp sort of song, a bit like Stooges, really. Or at least I wanted it to be like Stooges. It was nothing like the fucking Stooges, but uh, it. And then when I played it to John, well, me and Stuart were playing it one morning, and uh, John was making himself a cup of tea, and with Steve Adge. And they came in whilst we were playing it, and, and he just went, oh, is that yours? Did you write that? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, oh, right, yeah, I like that one. And Steve Adams kind of like grinning his head off. And then um, I think John said, well, he tried slowing it down a little bit. So we did. And then um, I think the bit that he added was the la, 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 living a lie. So I think it was just straight living a lie. There's a demo of it somewhere where I recorded it on my mate. So Mark Atkinson, he did a demo of a lot of songs I've written, written in Brighton. And um, I think that was in there. I'm not sure if it's on there or not, actually. But um, yeah, it was a lot different. But, you know, we used to sort of embellish each other's songs, really. So John would have an idea and I'd have an idea for his stuff. And that's how it kind of worked, really. But if you sort of written the bulk of the song, then it was your song. Uh-huh. Um, there was one point when I'd written I Want You To Know and uh, Stuart, me and Stuart had written the um, uh, there's a middle bit so I'd written the chords for the whole song I think and then there was this middle bit which is a bit kind of at the time I think we were thinking of being like psychedelic and proggy but it just sounds like Spinal Tap and but Stuart had kind of done this and I thought it sounded cool. So I was like, yeah, yeah. So I gave him 30% on the publishing for writing this, this little section. Right. It's all John, basically Stuart probably brought it up with John saying, all right, well, Chris gave me 30% on that bit. So I wrote this bit and this bit on your songs, which he did on John's songs. And John just went ballistic and came running and he was like, what are you doing giving Stuart that money, publishing money for that? And I'm like, well, he did write it. He's going, well, I'm not giving him any of mine. Um, there's always the Blue Flies, which is the band Stuart was in before, basically, like, Stuart starts pestering about it, then I'll fire him and uh-huh. have to go back to the band. That's when I realised that there was a lot more politics involved in music making and just having a laugh and drinking a few beers and being creative and coming up with stuff, because at the end of the day, it's kind of big sums of money involved then. These thirty percent actually mean something, rather than yeah. Um, and um, yeah, so that I think that became a bit of a kind of long-standing issue right. as things within the band, really, which was a shame because when well, I was in the yard, uh, I mean, there was some bloody good songs on that album, and then yeah, yeah. Then oh, I, mean, I think my favourite one, Standing on Your Head, I love that song. Uh-huh. And, uh, yeah, I really, really like that. That's a great song. It's funny though now, because I've been writing these lyrics out for people. And because um, obviously I'm not going to be doing a gig a night, you know what I mean? Um, so I've been flicking myself upon the poor world uh, watching me want to do like a, a, an online gig every night. I'm not doing that. Um, 
But I know that Rick was selling lyrics, and I think Mark Morris had been doing it, and then Paul Draper for months had said he was going to do it. And we toured with Madison around America, and he never spoke to me once, I don't think, if I remember rightly. Mm-hmm. And I thought, but he's doing it, and I'm, I'm going to have a go. And for the laugh, I wrote it on the back of an envelope. I wrote like the lyrics for Blinded by the Sun really quickly, and, um, and then took a picture of it and posted it on Facebook. And pretty much kind of just wrote a similar thing to what Paul and Paul Draper had written. And uh yeah. and then I think I got some like 50 orders in or something within 10 minutes. Right. And I didn't have enough paper, didn't have enough pens. I wasn't sure I was gonna mm-hmm. do it because I'm not really out in full. Um but I've been doing that now for about a year. Um, right. and it's it's kept my head afloat. So if anyone's listening, he's bought lyrics, I can't thank you enough because um, I don't really know what I'd have done. I'd have been busking again, probably. Or yeah. No, we can't busk because it's one late. Apparently, we breathe too much as singers, so quite contagious. <laughs> so the the other single, the single that came out after the album, "You Can Talk to Me," again, amazing song. It's probably my favourite Seahorses song because it came at a time. My big sister, uh, my nephew, ended up in children's hospital. He got he pulled he pulled a, a pan, a boiling water over his face. Oh gosh! And he was burned. And listen, he's all right now. He's he's uh, twenty seven. He's a he's a wee shit man. But uh, at the time, he was in hospital, and he was in hospital for he was in hospital for about six months, and this song came out, You Can Talk To Me, and it was kind of like my song and my big sister at the time, so it kind of, it, it really kind of clicked. So kind of tell us a bit about that, because that's, it kind of, it means so much to me, and whenever you look at well, well, it, I'm not going to be... tell you what it's about. Oh, no, no, um, no, I don't want to know what it's all about. Because you've got to... your own meaning to it, and I don't, I don't want it to, I don't want to stop it from being an important song to you, but... But I mean, you know, people. I think with that one, it's quite sort of. It's a broad message, really. Um, I was on my own in in an apartment um, in. Well, I was with Stu Fletcher actually, but we were being a bit too. We were partying a lot. Uh-huh. And we'd not gone to bed for a few days and um, started to go go a bit mad. And. Uh, I remember just sitting, I couldn't go to sleep. I was just sat down writing and writing and writing until I tried to write myself to sleep. And ended up writing all my thoughts out of my head and then ended up rhyming them and then ended up with the verses. And I'd already just come off the phone to met Jamie in York. I was on the phone for a good long five hours or something and got charged a shitload of money for that. I thought the record company would pay for that, but they didn't. And then, and then I ended up uh, just coming up with it, but I didn't, get, I didn't have a chorus or anything. And then when the album, we'd done the four singles and stuff, John was like, have you got any ideas for any songs for a single? We need to sort of come up with a follow-up. And I was like, well, have you? And he was like, I'm not very funny. He says, but we really haven't had really had time to write anything, have we? And I was like, well, no, not really. But I wrote this one when I was in America. I can't remember what I was there doing. Then we had to do an overdub for Love Me and Leave Me because the first line was Don't Believe in Jesus. Mm-hmm. And because the, the record company 
the middle Americans were going to try and assassinate if we told around the States because we didn't believe in Jesus. So we had to change it for American radio. And I think we ended up putting something like some sort of double irony thing, uh, disclaimer, don't believe in censors. What we put up instead. But um, yeah, so that's why we're in the States. Anyway, uh, John, I played him what he had and then we kind of knocked it to shape. And then he, he was like, So, what, how come you felt like that? And I was like, Well, I didn't know. He goes, You could have come and chatted to me about stuff if you were going mad like that. And I was like, Well, he we didn't think you were that approachable. And then he was like, Well, he wrote the chorus. So there you go. Um, and I think he was more upset about the the uh, telephone bill than he was about anything else, to be fair. <laughs> so, obviously, that single came out, and uh, I think everybody was expecting another album, which I think if you check online, there was kind of an album was ready to come out, but it kind of got shelved. So, did you... Yes, yeah, there's a look of disdain on my face there. About yeah. that album, I didn't like any of the songs. I didn't even like my own songs on right. it. Uh, although someone asked me to play one the other day, which was a, a song called "Oh, bollocks. What was it called? No, you see, this is it. It's uh, it just doesn't really have any resonance with me at all. That album, it just yeah. felt like it was something to do. Uh, rather than any depth in it, you know. Mm-hmm. I just, you only get one crack at this, and I didn't want to be writing a lot of shit when we knew that we're capable of not writing shit. You know, it's like, why are we doing this? This is just fucking rubbish. And um, there was a bit of a battle of wills between me and John um, to the point of it was actually splitting up uh, there's lots of little arguments about all sorts of things little digs here and there about stuff there was a few personnel changes with drummers and stuff like that and um, and it all just kind of caved in on itself really yeah. um, and we were all tired as well we been touring like mad um, I mean we did so much touring it was a massive whirlwind, really. And, and but you know, I was drinking far too much, uh, thinking that I could take it. You know, like my little body could take all this booze every night, and it was literally every night. And I remember just thinking to myself, "When was the last time that you didn't have a drink?" And I, it was getting on for like about three years. Right. Uh, when I say a drink, you want like a, a night. Oh, I was just going to have one beer tonight. It was a case of beer or two bottles of wine, you know, yeah. doing that. So I was poorly and I didn't realise it, making myself really ill. Seeing some pictures of myself around about that time and I'm just about 10 stone and look emaciated. And um, I think back now, you know, I, it was the only way I thought I could kind of deal with it because that's what we used to do when I was busking around France. You couldn't sleep because you're stressing that someone's going to mug you or whatever. You just get fucked on, on really cheap wine. And not worry about it. And that was a bit of a habit. Uh, and then there's all the other stuff, obviously, that goes with it as well. And then it was like, I think I just kind of got a bit too 
carried away with it. And because I had money as well, which I wasn't used to having, I just, it's like that old footballers thing, isn't it? You know, you just go off the fucking rails a bit and um, no yeah. one's there to tell you what happened. And if they do, you know. Ah, you're not interested in listening. But yeah, so uh, John had plenty of reasons to not want to be in a band with me. And, um, and I had enough reasons to not want to be in a band with him. Um, there was a lot of paranoia about a lot of things. Uh-huh. That's like you're in there, you know, people trying to, it's just, it was just people batting, you know, kind of using other people against other people. Um, and it was just really toxic. And, I'm, and I'm, I was glad to be out of it by the end of it. But mm-hmm. um, sure. I think everyone's grown up a bit. Thankfully, I think you know uh, if things were ever to happen again, it wouldn't be like that at all. Yeah, and obviously, I mean, after the split, you were still pretty close with Stuart Fletcher, weren't you? Still, and still, yeah, he still plays bass. Um, we plays on a lot of my stuff. Mostly, it's Jim because he's uh, he's fucking amazing. He's sister full of magic. Stuart, um, yeah, he's a great bass player. It's just that's what he does, you know. He plays bass and he's very, 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 very good at it. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's he's uh, he's just a brilliant musician. Um, he's great to have in a room as well with other musicians because you know he's always listening all the time. And he, if anyone's playing a bit out, he's kind of like almost like a musical director in some respects because he doesn't have to pull people up if they if they fuck up. Including me sometimes as well, you know, and she's like, but you know, I need to be told if I'm shit. But he's um he's very professional and really gets on with it. Uh and uh that's why he's in about ten different bands actually. So he's always busy doing something. So obviously you did you done the you split and then you had the yards and then you done the solo stuff, the, the rookery and things like that, and now you've got the Mark Morris, Nigel Clark stuff as well. So there's that. Yeah, there's that. And there's also I've been writing this album for seven years and recorded it. Then I lost the files for a couple of years because my file on my computer was dreadful. My laptop died and didn't realise you can retrieve stuff from, from from laptops and also they were just scattered all over lots of different hard drives. It's a really boring story, but I found them all in the end. Uh-huh. And I'd spent a few getting strings done and stuff so it was quite upsetting thinking i'd lost it all and then i found them again um just because i wasn't searching for the right fucking thing really and um and then so that kind of listening back to that after not listening to it for a couple of years it was like listening to another band and i really enjoyed what i heard mm-hmm. uh, then people that i did the rookery with and uh chris farrell um christian on double bass stuart on electric bass sam forrest um, John Agreves doing the strings and keys uh, and Geth on drums and um, yeah it, it's nice to listen to it but the thing is it's just there's always been something in the way for me to not get it out um, and I've been doing a lot of gigs and a lot of the gigs you know I'm not saying I play just seance stuff I don't I play it's probably a good lump of seance stuff but then there's other stuff that I do as well um, so I think I would start wondering about the songs that I write and the ones that I've recorded, the sounds, the, the, the wood really transpose really well 
in a theatre where everyone sat down and shutting the fuck up. But if you're playing in supporting Shed Seven and the Barrelands, you know, there's no chance you're going to get to play any of them stuff. No. It's just not going to happen. So, or even, you know, anywhere in Glasgow, <laughs> if it's in a it's like not not like 110 beats per minute, you fucked. So it's um yeah, it was a a, a lot of Ed games I've been playing myself, playing with myself with that one, and it's like um kind of it's still there. It's still as unfashionable as it was when I first wrote it. So I think I should be all right for another good 10 years. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but obviously, I mean, it's kind of about your peace of mind. If you need to get that album out to say that you've done that, then that's what you need to do. Like, yeah, I mean, to, to be fair, all I need to do, I need to sit down with it for a week mm-hmm. and, then, and then it's that. And I can do it. And I'm going to do it. I've just been doing other things like writing lyrics out for people. <laughs> but if I, I mean, I don't mind. It's good. You know, I must have written like, uh, honestly, I wouldn't like to say how many blinded by the suns and love is the laws and you can talk to me and buy the pictures I've written. But I close my eyes sometimes and that's all I can see. <laughs> but I don't mind doing it. And uh, it's, um, but yeah, I don't get much time to do anything else. Um, I've been writing with a few people as well recently, which has been nice, just different people, um, which is something that I like writing bits of stuff, getting it to a point where it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's really good, and then giving it to someone else who then they'll kind of build on it. Um, I'm already coming up with the initial seeds, I think, but I'd like someone else to kind of, you know, fertilise it. Oh, God, that's a dreadful (laughs) <laughs> so uh, before we go uh, I ask all my guests to do the pick four heroes to come to a dinner party and I know you were stressing about this for the start I'm not stressing about it there's worse things to stress about I'll tell you what I've, I've got it I've got it okay right. um, Neil Young because yeah. we nearly toured with Neil Young um, I'm getting it. that would be yeah. cool well, he's my hero. He's like, I fucking love Neil Young. Like, um, and, yeah, we, we got the tour to, to support him in Germany. But then he um, he cut his finger cutting a sandwich or something. <laughs> and, uh, and the whole tour was cancelled because he couldn't play guitar. And I was like, you're kidding me. I was like, one minute, you know, one day I'm like jumping out of my own skin just with joy about the whole thing. And then um, the next, it's uh, it's been cancelled. But then Simon Moran, in his own sort of dry way, just went. But you know, it's not all bad. Um, you can, you can we can support the Stone Roses if you want. Sorry, not Stone Roses. Oh God, Freudian slip. Rolling Stones. If you want. <laughs> I was like, oh, I was still disappointed because I wanted it to be Neil Young. And uh, I was like, yeah, okay. And part of me was going. Oh, they've not written anything of any consequence for years, have they, really? And it's like, God, these spoiled bastards. Um, and we toured with them. We did quite a lot of gigs with them. I think we did about four or five or something. Mm-hmm. Um, can't remember now, but it's funny because they, they charged us. We had to go, watch, if we wanted to watch and play, we, we had to pay, I think it was 90 euros to watch them. Even though you were supporting them? Mm-hmm. Easy. Yeah. That's why and they're did you, And did you pay it, though? You... 
No, I'd refuse, actually. <laughs> it's like I'm not doing it. I've seen you before anyway, so it doesn't matter. So, uh, yeah, um, it was an experience, but it's crazy old world and all that. That's when it gets a little bit too big and you create a monster that you, you're not in control of your own life anymore, are you? When you're something that big. Yeah. So, we're good, Neil Young. Oh, yeah, sorry. Neil Young, sorry. Um, <laughs> Johnny Cash. I reckon Johnny Cash would be pretty cool at a dinner table because he, he used to invite people around that he liked, didn't he, to have dinner at his house in his latter years. Uh-huh. Uh, I did invite Bono around a few times, which was maybe not the best judge of character. And then um, we've got, who else? Nick Cave. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, and Bill Withers, if he was still with us. Uh-huh. Isn't. Um, yeah, I'd say Bill Withers. And I'd make him soup. I'm right. very good at making soup. I've got good at making soup. And uh, how, how have you got good at making soup? Have you got, got good during lockdown or have you been an expert on this for, for a while? No, no, it's a lockdown thing. Um, right. uh, no matter what I put in it, it always tastes the same. <laughs> 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 I just put loads of chilies and uh, cayenne pepper in it and Chinese five spice or Japanese seven spice, you can get hold of it. But uh, there's a, a grocery around the shop. It's like an old school like little grocery shop and they sell pretty much any, any vegetable that you've, that's ever, ever been created ever. And... Um, yeah, I've been pretty experimental with invention stuff that I put in, but every time I make it, it just says it just tastes the same. So, uh, but it's rather spectacular, and I think if they're only to have it that once, they'd always remember it. Yeah, all um, right, all right. It's a good bunch of, of people as well. I think they would all get on with one another. I think so. I like the fact that they're all had really incredible careers. Mm-hmm. Um, but especially Bill Withers. There's a film called Still Bill. And if you watch that, you just fall in love with him. He's such a lovely bloke. He's definitely really grounded. And, you know, um, he just cares so much about his family and his community and everything. He's such a dude. And then you got Johnny Cash, obviously, who's, who's still, you know, suddenly he's not here, is he? And he just did what, he, what he's been through. Yeah. And then Nick Cave as well. I mean, he's been through an awful lot as well. Um, and Neil Young. He was with his wife, Peggy, for fucking years. It must have been over 50 years, I think. And then he decided that he was going to get a divorce and go out with Daryl Hannah. I mean, he must have just gone, like, oh, I can't have long left. So I've always fancied that bird from Splash. I think I'm just going to have a bit of a go on that for a bit. <laughs> um, so, yeah, but I think Neil Young would be great as well. And um, I wish I'd met him. I bet Prince would be quite funny, though. Yeah. You know, if he was still bad. Uh, I'd have to get some cushions on his chair. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I've seen, I'm pretty sure I've seen a video of Neil Young playing at Central Station in Glasgow, like a mad black and white one. It's, like, I've watched it a few times on YouTube. It's Is brilliant. It really when was it done? Eh. Uh, it must have been the late 60s, I would say. All right, okay. Yeah, yeah it's in black and white. I'll try and look at it and I'll kind of I'll forward it on to you. Yeah. 
And he's just remarkable. I mean, the thing is now, even when he's this age, he doesn't sound any different than he did. Yeah. He's still sing old man and all that and yeah, heart of gold. And it sounds like he did back then. It's like, wow. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't sound much like I did. My voice has changed a bit. I don't say it sounds changed drastically, but it's, um, it's definitely got different with age. Um, but Neil Young's just sounds like Mickey Mouse, like you and that's done. Mm. What's the matter with you, program? It was, I mean, see, like, he's Glastonbury a few years ago. I thought he smashed that, didn't he? he was, I thought he was a brilliant headliner. He's, I mean, I've seen some DVDs with him, and they all love behind-the-scenes stuff, and he's got his crew that have worked with him since back in the day, you know, since Buffalo Springfield days and stuff, you know, and it's like, you know, everybody that he works with, they, they love him, they trust him, you know. Yeah. He's the boss, but... He treats them well and they treat him well and it's like his big family. Um, apparently, is when you go on tour with him, he does do these dinners where it's like a big long table and, you know, the support band and the crew and everybody all eat together and everybody just gets on like a big family and that's how it should be, rather than this old competition-based us and them yeah. horrible nonsense, which seems to be very prevalent in the 90s with Britpop bands. But um, it's, uh, yeah, it's... Yeah, nearly have to do it. Yeah. I wonder if Nick Cave would actually be really funny. <laughs> I, would, I reckon he'd still be wearing a big white shirt with big white collars and a, and an enviable tailored suit where, where I'd never fit in at all. Yeah. Yeah, make a some guy, aren't they? Well, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's an interesting guy. I've, I've, I've seen a lot of podcasts and videos and interviews with him over the years. And he's fascinating. He just knows exactly what he wants, who he is. He doesn't give a fuck about what anyone thinks. And he's really creative. He's written countless books, never mind albums, made films, done film soundtracks, does poetry. He's got a great merch site as well. Right. Um, if you go on it, I think it's only since lockdown that he's put it up, because obviously his tours would have been cancelled. He needs to tour all the time. Um, and uh, yeah, he's got some really good stuff on there. I think it's called Cave, Cave Stuff or something like that. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'll have a wee look at that as well. It's always nice to kind of, I like to get kind of merch that's kind of different for uh, anything else. I might got to see Embrace once at the, a couple of years ago when they were selling tea towels at their, their gigs. Yeah, well, Nick Cave does tea towels as well. Yeah. You know those little jackets that you put on your dog as well, you know, to keep your dog warm? <laughs> he does them, but on the chest bit there, it says, suck my dick, I think. <laughs> and he's like, oh, my God. But, yeah, he's, he, I'm sure he does all right with his merch. Um, yeah. Another good one would have been Leonard Cohen. I really like Leonard Cohen as well, but I don't know, maybe... It'd just be far too intellectual for, for, for me and I'd just not, not say a word <laughs> and cower into my own insignificance. Well, that, I mean, that's us. I mean, you're picked four plus. You're trying to chuck in Prince and Leonard Cohen as well. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> thank you very much for coming on, Chris. No worries, no worries. It's a pleasure to have you. Yeah, it's nice. You don't get to talk to many people these days, really. So it's... Uh, it's 
I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Time for Heroes podcast. If you would like to get in touch, the best way is on the Facebook page, Time for Heroes podcast, or on Instagram at Time for Heroes podcast, or Twitter at Time for Heroes P1, or drop me an email at Time for Heroes pod at gmail.com You'll find Time for Heroes on all podcast platforms including Spotify, Apple, Google and Amazon. Please leave a review where you can, share with others and more importantly, enjoy. Cold wind.